Listen to them, the new fans of Bram Stoker's novel Dracula. What music they make. As we continue exploring the Count's Evil Castle in this month's Lorehaven Guild book quest, we plan to peer deeper into this literary crypt. This year, over 200,000 readers, many of them new, have been reading Bram Stoker's original classic novel. They have been cheering its earnestly good heroes who fight this evil vampire's predations. What have they thought about the story, and how have they sought to respect the world that they are entering? And after many decades of seeing Dracula in popular culture as a cartoon or a tragic figure, how can we as Christians better discern this villain and his horror versus the holiness of Christ's power? Creek open the crypt and welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com. Free of all haunts, this podcast helps you to explore fantastical stories for God's glory and apply their meanings to the real world. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, Lorehaven's publisher and the co-author of The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zach Russell. And unlike Dracula, my name spelled backwards isn't something cool like Alucard. But if you rearrange all the letters in my name in an anagram, it spells skull crazes. So if you've been around our Discord server and you've seen me and clicked on my name, that's why I have that nickname. I've never tried to rearrange my name into an anagram of that kind, but now you make me curious to try, Zach. And this is episode 133, How Are New Fans Discovering the Horror and Holiness of Dracula? This is more of our Monster Month series going on through the month of October, and it's also a spiritual sequel to a few previous episodes that we've done. Yeah, so back when I was in high school, a friend of mine would just loved doing anagrams. This is before there were websites and apps or whatever that can do this. Shout out to my friend David that I grew up with. So it's a little tradition we've carried on in our family where we all have anagrams that are just interesting uh, names. Naomi's is Maria Sue Knowles, uh, which is fun, but also Sir Alan Mouse. Love you, honey. And I'm glad that your name is actually Naomi, not Maria or Alan. Yeah, that anagram is like the most extreme 90s kid uh, name that I can think of. <laughs> you can just see uh, the neon green and purple coming off this. Dracula <laughs> goes back even further. He was, I think, adapted for a rather garish uh, 1990s movie, which I've never seen, but I've seen the clips. I don't like them. I'm not sure how you could have cast Kuno Reeves as Jonathan Harker and done a terrible job, but apparently that director did. I'm not sure how you could have cast Anthony Hopkins as Dr. Van Helsing, but it turned out not that great based on the clips I've seen. Dracula adaptations have come in for a roasting from these new fans of Dracula that I mentioned. We're going to talk about Dracula daily. We're going to talk about the book quest and how it's going. Our version of it, we are reading the book in order, unlike the Dracula daily subscribers. I gotta pitch that book quest, of course. Uh, Zach mentioned the Discord server. That is the Lorehaven Guild. It is invitation only, though. Uh, subscribe free to Lorehaven. You can get in there. It's not too late to join. By the time this episode releases on release date, we're probably about a week and a half into the book. But you can go to lorehaven.com slash subscribe, enter your email address, and then welcome to our house, enter freely, and all that sort of thing. But yeah, you can come and go freely in the house. We're not going to hold you down. We're not going to gaslight you or bounded choice you or spoiler alert any of the other terrible things that Dracula does to poor Jonathan Harker, who, as of this recording, is still stuck in the castle, for all we know. At the end of chapter four, uh, there's this big cliffhanger there, and then we switch to some other people. Uh, it's a great book. I've really been enjoying it. And we've already had an episode about that, Zach. Uh, that actually brings me to our uh, concession stand for this episode. Uh, we haven't gotten into the Halloween treats just yet, so maybe these are leftovers. I don't know. I don't know what you have on your fall menu. First concession here, unlike the Count Dracula, we do sup. So tonight we sup on concessions. I mentioned this episode is a spiritual sequel to some previous episodes like number 39. Uh, we had a Jeffrey Ryder, an English professor in here who's a big fan of the Stokerverse and knows a lot about the cultural background of this author and a lot of the spiritual and deep themes and Victorian ideas that are in the book. So he helped us out with that. Now we're going to talk more about the response to Dracula in this episode. Whereas there, we focus mostly on a Stoker. We'll have that link in the show notes. Uh, this also follows from our last episode, 132, Do Christians Really Need Horror? So if you want to talk about the genre, the scary stuff, we went over that stuff in depth. I'll just recap some of those themes really quick here, though. Uh, we see horror here uh, as a genre, not as a means to be realistic about how dark the world is or edgy. 
Uh, we're not going after slasher movies in order to make the legalists at the church back home squirm if they only knew the kind of things that we've seen. Oh, we're so edgelord. Uh, we don't want to do that. It's a gentle roast there for you edgelords there. You can be in the family <laughs> of God too, but that's okay. I think it's just a maturing phase of going through, yeah, horror, yeah. Uh, and I think we instead ought to base our discernment of the genre of horror in the Bible and the gospel. And this includes Dracula, which is a deeply Christian story, now over 120 years old. It released in 1897. Uh, the author, Bram Stoker, at least understood deep gospel ideas. Very thoughtful guy, apparently a very hardworking guy, had some family issues as far as we know. Uh, we're not sure whether he would have confessed Christ like, a, like an American evangelical, if he would have had a day and date for when he received Jesus as his personal savior and Lord. Uh, but the gospel is in that story, really deep ideas there. So that's why we're talking about it here uh, at Lorehaven, why we're doing the book quest. Uh, we are chasing after fantastical novels that also have gospel themes in them that come uh, from a Christian author, or in this case, certainly feels, looks, smells like a Christian author, Bram Stoker. Uh, and you've got to go into that book quest uh, to discover more of those themes yourself. I'll get that link in the show notes. Yeah. And something else I want to add sort of as a concession, and I'm I'm only realizing this now as I've been going through the Dracula audiobook, Stephen, is that this is a more serious approach to Dracula than a lot more of the modern stuff that you see. So I like that we're doing a deep dive in this because the Dracula I grew up with, like I said, the Alucard. So that's a reference to the 1987 movie Monster Squad which was sort of like the Goonies, but monsters. The storyline is Dracula is alive. In fact, he plans to rule the world. And that is why he seeks the help of other legendary monsters like the Wolfman and Frankenstein. However, a bunch of kids regarded by their peers as losers uncover the devious plan and prepare for a counter-strike. I was in the 80s when I saw this. That I is was, so 1980s. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I was, you know, elementary kid. Like, this was awesome to think about being a kid and like taking on Dracula and all these monsters and putting them into limbo or something to get rid of them. It was kind of silly. And, you know, as a kid, that's appropriate to have a silly movie where these monsters are kind of silly. But what I like about Bram Stoker's Dracula is this is not a silly monster. This is a very serious monster that represents very serious things in the world. And I know, you know, you said we're not going to dive into how deep and dark the world is, but I think that this is a very accurate portrayal of uh, some types of real life horrors that we're going to get into. Yeah, that's enough of your cartoon Dracula in the MCU for the kids. <laughs> we're in the DC Dracula now. Now, of course, Dracula doesn't belong to any superhero universe. I almost wish that the critter had not passed into the public domain so early. I was doing a little research, and apparently uh, Bram Stoker didn't copyright the novel in time for the United States. So suddenly these uh, motion picture makers could just go crazy with Dracula, like breaking the canon, uh, having him apparently actually be alive this whole time and trying to take over the world instead of <clears throat> what happens to him actually in the end of the book in the actual canon. No, Dracula did not meet Abbott and Costello. No, uh, he didn't survive millennia to the future sci-fi scenarios. No, he's not some uh, sexy, anti-hero, tragic, broken figure. There's so many myths out there, and it's just <laughs> something very refreshing, as I mentioned in our episode 39, to go back to the original and discover just how much more robust and how in-depth uh, this story is. And unlike that episode, now we've got at least 200,000 people who have subscribed to this Dracula Daily e-newsletter and have fulfilled a lot of the hopes I expressed in that episode. And we'll get to that uh, in our next couple of chapters here. Speaking of creepy castles, our next book actually has a rather non-creepy castle on the front, uh, and that is Dream of Kings, a new fantasy novel by Sharon Hink, releasing from our cover sponsor for this episode, Enclave Publishing. Here's the back cover, The Future Never Sleeps. In the glacial nation of Norgard, Jolin the Dreamteller serves every seeker, whether peasant or high lord. Though she loves using her gift, she struggles to navigate the corrupt and dangerous court and the jealousies of the Gildegard. When an old man's nightmare imparts a dire warning, Jolin realizes her entire nation is in danger. But before she can sound the alarm, she is betrayed by the guilds and sold into slavery in a rival kingdom far to the south. As a slave in a foreign land, at first Jolin can't see beyond her singular focus, return home to warn Norgard of the coming calamity. After facing new dangers, making new friends, and forgiving old wrongs, she must fulfill the purposes the provider has set before her. Only then can she face a decision that could cost her the man she loves, her calling, and her freedom, 
all to save a people who abandoned her. That is from Dream of Kings by Sharon Hink. We actually, by coincidence, just reviewed this at lorehaven.com. And we said in part, Sharon Hink's novel, Dream of Kings, fantastically reimagines the biblical Joseph narrative, drawing readers into a vivid world of political intrigue and faith struggles. That's from our review, all links in the show notes. You can also get the link for Dream of Kings, which releases, oh yeah, on this same episode release date, October 11th, 2022 from Enclave Publishing. Hey, Stephen, late addition to the concession stand. Did you know that Monster Squad, the 1987 kids movie, was directed by none other than Fred Decker? Fred Decker. Does he have a little K uh, in his name? Because otherwise he's not a Decker. It's not part of the Decker brand. Spelled the same way. So but, it's a variant. It's a variant yes. of a, a, a professing Christian novelist that we might speak and he, of. He also wrote a film called House, and Ted Decker has a book that he co-wrote with Frank Breddy called House. Okay, that's just too many weird connections there. The multiverse is real? But apparently no relation between them. So yeah, anyway. just Other than Ted Decker, you just don't see a <laughs> lot of Deckers out there. I've even seen no. a few more Paredes, but uh, you know, Decker may as well own, own that name. A glitch it's in the Matrix, in the or, Matrix. or the Limbo yes. or something here. Yes, exactly. All right, well, let's go further back than uh, late 90s or 80s uh, action <laughs> movies and go to chapter one of this discussion. How did Dracula Daily boost this book? And I must say that if it weren't for my wife, uh, Lacey, I don't know the anagram of her name, uh, I may not have learned about this. But all of a sudden, starting in May of this year, 2022, she was talking about Dracula Daily and lots of other fans are talking about this uh, new expansion all of a sudden of the Dracula fandom. It started this year and it started in May for a particular reason. Uh, there was a chap called Matt Kirkland who rediscovered the book Dracula. I mean, he's apparently done some Internet videos, some wacky stuff, some things like that. But nobody knew who this guy was other than now a fan of Dracula and actually go to our show notes and we can get this whole article uh, done by Slate.com. They have the whole story. Uh, turns out he'd already done this newsletter. He just started a Substack called Dracula Daily in 2021. And what he did was he simply posted excerpts from the novel, but on the day that the character has written the journal entry or talked into the phonograph uh, in the novel, because the novel is, uh, what's the word, uh, epistolary. Uh, it's done in a found footage format where you mm -hmm. see Jonathan Harker's journal, May the 4th, you know, Mina Harker's letter to Lucy Westenra, you know, July the so-and-so. Anyway, he got, he said in this article, maybe 1,600 readers last year. So this was after we did our episode, uh, but something this year caught fire. Like you wonder how these things go viral in the internet age. His newsletter this year, Dracula Daily, has over 200,000 readers. That was like several months ago. And he was wondering, whoa, like is this a flash in the pan? Like, are people going to get bored? Is the FOMO going to wear off? Of the novelty going to dry up? What's going on? So it may have even more now. Uh, these people who signed up at the Substack uh, are been getting the newsletter. It's, it's, it's the whole novel, unabridged, but the original novel is presented thematically. Uh, the first four chapters follow Jonathan Harker at Castle Dracula and it roughly span a uh, time span between uh, May and I think either June or July. I think it's actually July. And then we cut back in time and we see what his fiance and her best friend have been talking about in letters back and forth. So it's sorted roughly chronologically, but also thematically there. The new version of this remixes it because he's releasing these letters on the day of entry. So not only is it resorting uh, the constituent parts of the novel, but he's also dragging it out. You know, a character may have, you know, three letters over a few weeks inside of one chapter of Dracula. But if he's waiting like six days in between the letter, uh, then at least fans who've never read the novel uh, have that pacing. It's built in uh, this uh, this waiting. You know, you're not just binging. You're not just skipping to the next episode. And so a lot of people who are very aware of the fact that this has been reorganized by uh, Matt Kirkland here, Dracula Daily, uh, they've started doing their own sociological, you know, their own kind of impromptu amateur sociological research. Like, wow, this is really different. Uh, even if you're a big reader of a book, uh, you're not just reading it start to finish. Like, you can't stay up late to resolve the cliffhanger. You have to wait weeks, maybe months to figure out what happened mm. to our good friend Jonathan in the castle. So he was sending these emails out 
along the same timeline as the book. Exactly. Right? If you get a Jonathan Harker okay. letter on May the 4th, then you got the email on May the 4th and it covered everything that's grouped under that date in the original book. Now, was it kind of reworded in modern language or was it no. just basically the text of, from the basically book? Basically the text. The text of the book is in the public domain. As I mentioned okay. earlier, you know, in some ways unfortunate, but in other ways fortunate. Because now, I mean, I don't think the Stoker estate, if it's still uh -huh. around, uh, earns a single dime from this. But the original Bram Stoker's mm. Dracula is getting more and more famous among hundreds of thousands of readers, many of whom have never read this before. Like, I feel kind of cool now because yeah. I read the book in 2018, and that's when uh, we did our episode actually in fall of 2020. And by then I was thinking, wow, this is a really good book, and I'm surprised it doesn't have a mm. bigger, obvious fandom. Even for a older book, it has aged remarkably well. And at the time, like there was more action under the hashtag Me Too, and there was a lot more overt cultural attention being paid toward uniquely disordered masculinity, you know, predatory males, abuse, like some of that's still going on, but I think it's been more integrated into the discourse. And Dracula, to me, as I'll mention later too, really gives a language to that. It is startlingly modern, uh, but also challenging to modern mores because you know, Dracula is not sexy. He is sensual. His she-vampires are also very sensual. But our heroes are tempted yet virtuous. They want nothing to do with this moral disorder. To a man or woman, they are fine, upstanding Victorian Christians, or at least Christian-ish. And that's the way that they look at the world. This whole format, I think, not only has reinvigorated the Dracula fandom, but it seems to breathe new life haha, into the book club concept, uh, which we really like in the Lorehaven Guild. We're doing Dracula in the original order because, you know, it's a brilliant concept to remix it like Dracula Daily has. We could never hope to redo that or rip that off, especially because it would take longer and we want to get in and out of the book inside of a month, uh, the month of October. I have always wanted to see for a while the book club come back, but you really can't do this. Like we tried it before, Zach, in person because we live kind of close together, like. We tried to do for a while a real life book club, but uh, especially with younger folks, like I just think culturally and depending on someone's income level or life station or whether or not you have a lot of kids, like it's, it's really difficult to add another thing just for grownups going through a book like this. But that's partly why we started the Lorehaven Guild because, well, like could this work in a virtual format? You know, a new hip happening social network that replicates the old forum experience and, you know, lends itself to some community guidelines. Discord was a great chance. Uh, now we're we're approaching nearly 200 heroes of the guild in Discord, and we're having a blast going through books like Dracula. Yeah, and you know something I want to say to you, if you're a new listener of the show and uh, you haven't jumped into a book quest yet in the Discord server, I just want to emphasize that this is not a real time book club discussion. This is not like the book clubs that you've been to before. This is not your grandmother's book club. This is asynchronous, you know, so it's not time bound. So even though we are doing a discussion this month on Dracula. You know, if you're finding this episode in a couple months from now, a year from now, you can still go jump oh, in. Oh yeah, the castle doors are still open. Yeah. Yes, exactly. In fact, we we I I you know what's funny, Zach? I thought at first, okay, well, the book quest is over. We're gonna lock this down. Like, I mean, Discord clears stuff off of the stage pretty quickly. It's not going to pop up immediately. But all you have to do is just click the drop down. You know, ended book quests the way we have it now, and you can see it there. I, I think yeah, we're just gonna keep there. all those open for the line in which more drove back in January all the way through. Dracula and uh, yeah. and our books coming up in November and December. Yeah, so. and it, and it's great to drop in one of those older conversations and just kind of revitalize it. Like, why yeah. not? Folks are still talking about The Hobbit. Uh, there's a, been a few folks uh, going back to our July book quest, which was for uh, George McDonald's Fantasties. Uh, lots of wisdom in there uh, from our heroes, and I would expect nothing less from good, virtuous Christian heroes of the guild. Uh, you can find heroes in surprising places, and that even includes, in the case of the Dracula Daily fandom, Exactly. We know that Tumblr is a wretched hive of scum, <laughs> villainy, and pronouns. Yeah. But in this case, uh, Kirkland here, who started Dracula Daily, he said that most of his traffic was coming from Tumblr. So can anything wow. good come out of Tumblr? Apparently, <laughs> in this case, yes. Uh, there were fans, 10 righteous people found. Yeah, apparently, yes. Yeah, so we don't need to nuke it from orbit. It's, uh, <laughs> we didn't, it's not the only way to be sure. Tumblr fans, like Alacy shared with me so many examples of their speculations about the book. They are cheering the heroes. Uh, more recently, they were like legitimately affected by the loss of a character. And I can't spoil who that is, but I, I can only imagine how that would feel stringing it along now over months as this character is just, you know, close to death and then coming back and then 
you know, these heroes are pitching in to help her and they're just good, virtuous chaps there in the, in the UK, in the Victorian era. They are cheering these heroes uh, and they are making fan art. Back when Dracula Daily started, like there was this whole thing where, like, what's with the Jonathan Harker journaling, you know, that the paprika is too spicy for him. And there was this whole debate over, well, what, what is uh, Transylvanian paprika like? And is it like ours or is it just because he's English, you know, before <laughs> they had a lot of spices in their food, if they ever did. Fans are getting into those really nitpicky niche details of the book, as well as discovering the meta themes of the book. And we'll talk about that more in chapter two of this discussion. I'm not in Dracula Daily as much as Lacey is. I just I knew we'd be doing the book mm -hmm. quest one way or another. I knew that you know, I'm still going to be in the book fandom. Like, And by that point, I'd read it twice in the original order, and I wasn't sure I could do it differently. I imagine half the fun is just reading it for the first time in this different way and reading it with other people. As of this recording, fans are finally nearing or getting closer to the conclusion of the book. Dracula, in the, the first date, I think, in Jonathan Harker's journal is May the 3rd. And it concludes, uh, apart from a seven-year epilogue, it concludes on November the 6th. So we will wrap our book quest a little closer to Halloween. We wanted to clear aside for our, our next book quest in November. Uh, but they've been going at it for yeah, May to November. I mean, it's about half of the year. Yeah, I love this format, Stephen. It's so interesting. The original idea he had for this, which was, hey, why don't we slow this book down a little bit? and spread it out, I'm like, wow, that is so against the grain of yeah. our binge-watching culture and just instant gratification. I, I love your story that there were readers that were like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen next? And they don't know when they're going to get the next they letter. They could go they and find out. Yeah, they all could. you have to do is just download yeah. the, the, the public domain copy sure. to your electronic reader. It's probably out there on some websites or something. It's really easy to find, but people don't want to because then they'd be rushing ahead of the group. Yeah, that kind of self-control is really admirable just to like let a story play out. I mean, because how many other stories do we actually get to experience that way where we're not going to know because we can just watch the whole thing all at once or just go find all these theories? Like, I, I commend the Tumblr fans. Like, way to go. You know, Stephen, this whole approach reminded me of an Apple iPhone, Apple Watch game from uh, 2015, 2016. It's called Lifeline. And the way the game worked was an, an astronaut has crashed on this planet and he's sending out these like kind of distress call messages of just like, hey, I crashed and I'm not sure what to do. Do I go here? Do I go there? So it's sort of like a choose your own adventure. You're sort of like mission control in the story. And Taylor, who's the uh, character, is sending you these messages. You get to choose for him what he does. So it's like uh, the Andy Weir's The Martian, except you're yes. playing the role. Okay, that, no, that's yeah, kind so of you're, you're playing the role of, of telling him what to do. But often what would happen with this game is there'd be delays. There'd be minutes, hours, days would go by before you would find out what happens. And so it played out over a period of time. And oh, it, wow. was, it was so immersive. Uh, when I played this game, however long ago that was, and it was just text. All it was was text. There weren't any oh, fascinating. graphics. Yeah, I was, I was thinking it of was pictures. just a okay. story. Yeah, wow, it was just wow. a pure story. It was amazing how it worked out. You know, it's too bad. I, I'm only just now finding out about Daily Dracula. Maybe I'll have to do it next year, but that's really fun. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think that he plans to do it again. Uh, there may be some other updates I'm not aware of, but we'll include that link, of course, in the Dracula Daily. If you're familiar with Dracula, hey, you know, there's only about one month to go now, but that may be best uh, to jump in uh, one month later and just kind of catch up and see how that's going. We'll have that link in the in the show notes. Zach, I think this is a great way to use new technology uh, to distribute content and respect the old. Uh, I'm seeing so much respect among this community for the old ways uh, and old uh, mannerisms of depicting characters. Uh, the dynamics of men and women in Dracula are fascinating because, of course, it's going to be, I think, exaggerated or idealized version of them. And like, you know, there was sexism going on and you know some other isms that are actually bad going on back then. But in this case, I mean, this is a fictional version of that world that brings out, I think, the best of this era, the best of the culture as filtered through Bram Stoker, who obviously would have had his own beliefs about things. I find those dynamics interesting, and I find the response of the readers to this dynamic very, very illuminating, like, particularly because you know demographically a lot of these people would not be as familiar with these uh, emotionally stable yet also traumatized relationships, and yet they are just digging in and just along for the ride. And we'll say more about that in Chapter 2. I'm getting ahead of myself, of course, but first let's stop by our second sponsor for this episode. 
It is The Tethered World by Heather L.L. Fitzgerald from Mountain Brook Fire, the publisher. More monsters in this one, folks. So we are keeping to the theme here. Here's the back cover. For Sadie Larson, family dynamics look a little different. Parents with oddball occupations, normal. Five homeschooled siblings, one with autism, normal. Parents missing and claw marks on the family minivan, definitely not normal. Sadie discovers her mother's interest in Bigfoot, Nephilim, and other lore is more than a quirky hobby. Her family guards the tethered world, home to creatures that once roamed the Garden of Eden, not all of whom are friendly. To save their parents, the Larson siblings will have to leave normal far behind. This book is available in audio, ebook, and paperback. You can get the links in our show notes for episode 133 or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors to see the cover and more information for The Tethered World by Heather L.L. Fitzgerald. Zach, of course, we're trying to have a Nephilim episode coming up here in a, a few weeks. This is a more interesting take on that, I think. I'm kind of allergic to Nephilim. I'm kind of tired of the critters. <laughs> uh, I guess I'm all about vampires now. I have picked a side, except I, I oppose mon uh, vampire monsters. That's the, that's the monster I love to hate these days. But I can respect Dracula. And let's go to chapter two to learn how have new fans respected Dracula the book, even while they love to hate Dracula the creature. And in this case, uh, similar to my legitimate praise uh, for the Tumblr community, which has caused a lot of damage in our culture, be not dismayed, fans of literature and truth for a Christian worldview. Turns out that whether it's from the Tumblr fandom or not, apparently not all young readers are bent toward appropriating stories as tools for their own tales. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, Zach, a little while ago, I mean, there's still some fracas going on about Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling, but one of the most disreputable responses I've seen to that uh, fans turning against her is the folks who say, like, they just come right out and say, she didn't write Harry Potter. This is our story now. It belongs wow. to us, which is just an absolute statement of evil satanic rebellion in micro. Uh, this world doesn't belong to her. She has nothing to do with it. It's mine now. So well, kind that's, of uh, ultimate death of the author. Approach. Oh, yes. <laughs> ultimate death of the, yeah, it's, it's terrible. She's dead to me. Like, you know, right. this whole thing about dead naming. Now we're just dead, dead shaming. Like you're, you're dead to me. Yeah, that's gross. But this is not that. Uh, these fans who are reading Dracula, and it'd be fascinating to get like a survey of these folks. Like I would want to know. Where are these folks coming from? What's their cultural background? Like, are they married, single, divorced? Are they from uh, broken homes? Uh, what is their age, income level, usual career of choice, that kind of thing? I'd love to know what's leading them to this conclusion because they are just downright wholesome here because they're not rejecting the creator. They want to know more. They're not taking the story and using that to express their own interests. They're not projecting their own uh, foolish or even wicked beliefs over top of the book. They're not reading it and taking Dracula's side. They're not being postmodernists. You know, it's not like a liberal going through the New Testament and figuring out which miracles he's going to accept and which ones he's going to reject. No, uh, people are receiving this story with humility. They are humbly entering the world of Stoker, the world of Dracula, and they are doing what they're supposed to. Yeah. And so you mentioned a couple minutes ago that they're kind of rediscovering this Victorian world and finding the best parts of it. And, and that, that really stood out to me when you said that, because usually when you hear people talk about the Victorian era, it's very negative. Yeah. We're all supposed to criticize them. Yeah. Yeah. So what were some of the good aspects of the Victorian era that are coming through in this book? Uh, virtuous men and women. I mean, I remember even when I read the book first, I, I thought, okay, so, I mean, I was expecting some melodrama. Uh, I was expecting there to be absolute good guys and absolute bad guys. And yes, they're absolute bad guys, but the good guys struggle. Uh, I noticed again, there's a scene where uh, Jonathan Harker is, let's just say he's, he's tempted. He confesses his temptation right then and there in the book, but he's also very aware, like, this is not what I want. I felt this way, but I don't mm. want to be this way. Like my fiance could read this someday. I don't want her to be hurt by what I was thinking, but I have to admit this is what I was thinking. And then by the end, like he's obviously... Uh, stood strong, actually has a surprising rescuer in that scene, uh, which if I recall right, is chapter two or chapter three, I think it is. Actually, yeah, that's right. It's uh, chapter three. 
And so, you know, Jonathan in particular is he's a he's a complex character, but he's also a virtuous man. Like he wants to be faithful to his fiance. Uh, he wants to resist temptation, but he's also traumatized. I mean, he, he reacts just like anybody would in this situation. I'm trying to avoid spoilers here. We went into spoilers in episode 39. I'm trying to keep out of it here in case some of our uh, book quest folks are listening to this. Uh, but uh, that's one example of just the, the fandom's embrace of Jonathan. And we'll talk about this later. Like they realized how how much he'd been done wrong <laughs> in some of the movie adaptations. Mm. Like some some adaptations drop him completely. Uh, some make him out to be like this, this, this weakened character. I think the Kuno Reeves version was actually pretty pathetic. Uh, they made it more Mina's story in that particular movie based on the clips that I've seen. Everybody wanted to take his side. They had a nickname for him. Oh, this is, this is our friend, Jonathan. We haven't seen him in a while. I wonder how he's doing in the castle. Like the, uh, the backfill of the imagination in those days or even weeks where you didn't hear from him, people would start speculating. Uh, he was still going on in the background like a virtual pet, but more complex than that. And everybody wanted to know how he was doing. And I think a lot of people, this gets a little dark here, folks, so bear with me. I think a lot of people would resonate with this story for the reasons I expected back in our episode 39, because this is a person who has undergone what could only be described as a kind of sexual assault. Uh, told you it was going to be dark, uh, but whether or not you've been through an experience like that, uh, any listeners like that, we want to pray for you. We want to support you here. Lots of people have been through legit trauma, whether it's that way or another way. And I think that is uh, that's something that has brought that character higher in these new readers uh, estimations. OK, so as a new reader to Dracula, Stephen, I'm still trying to make sense of all the characters. So who are uh, Lucy and Mina and how, what's their relation to Jonathan? Is this some kind of love triangle? It is not a love triangle. Certainly not. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> and, and again, I don't know what's fascinating is that there are trios in the book. Okay. Uh, there's a trio of women. You could say sort of, uh, Jonathan disabuses us of that notion at the end of chapter three. And there's a trio of men, uh, and readers love okay. them. And I don't want to get into the spoilers. Uh, as we record, okay. we actually just posted the uh, the questions for chapter five, where we get more of these characters besides Jonathan. The men folks are loving them. Like they, they fell in love with Lucy as a character. They're in great admiration of Mina. Uh, they support uh, the men, uh, the trio of men of Dr. Seward. Uh, they're laughing with and not at Quincy Morris, who's an honest to goodness Texan in the book as the only American Texas represent. <laughs> uh, he talks in slang, you see, because slang is distinct from proper talk or yes. default talk. It's a very interesting division. Texan very, talk is proper. That's that's yes, proper. But yeah. I mean, she's talking about, oh, he speaks in slang. And I have to like, <laughs> I remember hearing that word. Like, what a weird different era this is where there was a thing called slang before it just became basically the normal language as opposed to speaking formally. And everybody likes Arthur Holmwood as well, who has to bear up a lot of pain in this book. Like so many men bearing up so much pain here and women bearing up under so much pain, but they're pursuing virtue. You know, and they're not just doing the stiff upper lip thing. They're very dramatic, but I, I don't know. I, I used the word melodramatic earlier, but I think it's just a healthy emotional connections uh, you see in this book. And if anything, Zach, you mentioned the love triangle. A lot of people, I was hoping they would, and they loved it. A lot of people loved how Stoker seemed to incidentally subvert the love triangle idea. Uh, like I said, there's at least two trios of individuals there. And uh, Stoker, I think, incidentally plays one off the other. There's an obvious set of heroes uh, versus an obvious set of disordered uh, figures. And finally, there's Dr. Van Helsing, who like, I haven't seen as many horror novels like you have, Zach, but Dr. Van Helsing is also this complex but totally heroic person in the book. He is very emotionally balanced. Uh, he's also just a total big good character. I, I think he's, he's a caretaker. He's a legit doctor, and he's an absolute hero. Okay, that is very different from the Van Helsing I've seen in more modern uh, and even the uh, my, my kids love is it Hotel Transylvania or something in the 
all the Van Helsings I've seen in recent years are, are not very impressive. That, I don't think I could get through those cartoons. I, it looks like I'm, I'm, I'm still in the cage stage, brother. I'm in the cage stage from two years ago. Like, don't ruin vampires. Don't make them sexy and sparkling and don't ruin the heroes. Van Helsing is an old, wonderful gentleman. He's a lawyer and a doctor, and he's open to investigating the mystic arts. Uh, and he's a fine, upstanding Christian man, a husband and a father and a respecter of women and a warrior for Christendom. Like, don't don't mess with my Dr. Van Helsing. So he sounds quite a bit like Mr. Whitaker from Adventures in Odyssey. Does that, oh, that's is a, good that a good point. comparison. You know, I think it's a good comparison. Yes. Okay. Now, Mr. Whitaker, I think, would probably uh, not be using the sacred wafer as this kind of spiritual C4 to use against the <laughs> vampires. Like, I mean, this is where the tropes come from, folks. Like, we really do appropriate. Uh, this Catholic mass imagery, uh, this Irish Protestant uh, Bram Stoker uh, seems to have had a thing for at least some ecumenical appropriation of the symbols. Yeah, I have heard that other movies have ruined Van Helsing. Like I saw some, oh, there's a movie called Van Helsing starring right. uh, Hugh Jackman. And like uh, it, he's basically Hellboy without the horns. It's just it's just gross. Mm. Like That's not my that's uh, uh, that's why I wish the book hadn't gone into the public domain and then gotten subjected to all these movies have kind of ruined it. Uh, I, I, like again, disclaimer, like there may be some good ones out there, um, but I have done some research. Uh, I mentioned the 1992 movie that from what I can tell, like, even though it rather cheekily called itself Bram Stoker's Dracula, it was Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Uh, the worst part that I could see is even if they followed the book's plot points fairly accurately and even put Quincy Morris in a cowboy hat. Uh, the fact that you start off with Dracula and basically make him the anti-hero, well, not the anti-hero, like the protagonist, but basically. kind of, if you make him into any kind of sympathetically tragic villain, like there is like a hint of that in Stoker, but only at the very last when you know he's about to go down uh, and you don't want to gloat over your enemy too much uh, because, the, I mean, that's just a good Christian principle there. Even with someone like Dracula, you want to hope that he's going to repent right before you drive a stake into his chest. But if you make him into this sexy, sympathetically tragic villain, uh, that is an absolute overthrow of the principles of the book. And these right. readers of Dracula Daily don't like that at all. They need to hate Dracula. They need to see that he's crazy and disordered and perverted and he needs to go down. Uh, they don't like the idea of making him into this tragic figure. And in fact, uh, and I kind of agree with them in this. It's a little revealing that big Hollywood scriptwriters or executives or directors or whatever uh, seem to want to take Dracula's side or imply, and this is terrible, or imply that the women enjoy his predations. And I oh, think that, wow. that that's just that's just kind of satanic there. Uh, that is that is wicked. Uh, just trying to, I mean, it's 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 not only sexist. I mean, it's a it's a it's a sexual perversion there. Yeah, maybe uh, Harvey Weinstein is sort of writing himself into the story there. But anyway. Um, it sounds like what's going on with a lot of these uh, modern retellings where Dracula is more sympathetic or sexy or whatever is that I, I think ultimately it's an aversion to showing true evil because we've become such a relativistic culture. And I'm sure we'll talk about this more in chapter three, but is that, does that sound about right between the, the original Dracula and the newer ones? Do you think that's kind of the issue going on? I think so. Uh, even after I wrote the notes for this episode, I was watching some clips of Sir Christopher Lee, the late, great Sir Christopher Lee, Soderman himself. I can do the voice better in the mornings. Uh, but he also, of course, famously played Dracula in a bunch of intentionally low-budget B-movies from the Hammer Studios. He did not like those movies. He was very clear about that, even though it made him famous. And he later was in a apparently slightly more faithful version called Count Dracula in 1970. I was watching an uh, interview on YouTube. I'm, I'm going to see if I can get that link in the show notes where he was asked about it. And he basically said, well, I wanted to play Stoker's Dracula. And th those movies are not about Stoker's Dracula. And like he quoted lines from the book from memory. And he was clearly, you know, an OG fan of the original book. And he just outright said, well, the reason why I was in those movies is because I was good friends with all the people who worked on them, And we were one big happy family, even if the movies were dumb. And they kind of <laughs> steered me into doing more of them because they said, otherwise, all these people out of work. And he seemed to have been such a such a humble gentleman uh, that he just swallowed his pride and his creative integrity <laughs> and went ahead and did them. But he clearly had a very high and possibly even Christian view himself of evil uh, mm -hmm. and was against uh, people taking uh, evil so flippantly. He, he took it very seriously. He'd obviously seen some evil, and I think that's why he's uh, he's a great villain, especially as uh, at least as a uh, Saruman the White. 
So are there any overt Bible allusions in uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula? Oh, so many. Yeah. I mean, not just the, not just the symbols, but the whole theme of blood going throughout, like he has a, a, one could say saturated, biblically saturated view of blood. He is quoting like even a line from Leviticus, the life is in the blood. There's a moment where Dracula tempts one and says, all these I will give you if you will worship me. I mean, Mm, it's it's over the top, absolutely (laughs) over the top. No, Dracula is Satan. I mean, his name Mm. basically refers to something dragon-ish. That is why it's so uh, twisted if someone makes him into anything other than a completely evil villain. You try to make him complex or, you know, gray, even if it's dark gray and he still needs to be dispatched by the end, uh, then you are literally showing sympathy for the devil. And what's kind of fun is that many readers are discovering these Bible illusions. Uh, There was one post that I saw from somebody who had just caught up to it. She said, uh, I think it's a Tumblr post actually been catching up on Dracula daily and wow, there is a whole lot of Christian biblical imagery going on, especially references to the Gospels. Uh, she uses a bunch of, I don't know how it works on Tumblr, but I guess they're hashtags, but it's just each hashtag is a sentence. We've got perverse Eucharist. We've got legion slash possessing animals rather than casting out demons. We've got language mimicking the Temple Mount temptations. We've got pillar of cloud, pillar of fire imagery going on, reverse walking on water because the count can't cross running water. I've known about that for a while. Like lots of, lots of uh, Christian literature nerds have known that. And the conception of dead is structured like an anti-resurrection. It's true. If you're a vampire, if you're a vampire, you're undead. Uh, it's a parody of the resurrection. And ultimately, this person summarizes, I mean, I thought I knew about Christian imagery and vampires, but now the pieces fall together. It's not just slapdash of bad things equal not Christian. So count equal repelled by Christian stuff. But no, his whole characterization is wreathed in Christian imagery. Oh, also forgot the line that maybe want to post this Mina's unclean line about being made unclean. That of course, uh, I didn't even think about that could be a reference to the woman who had, uh, um, it says in the older translations, just reporting in here, folks, an issue of blood whom Jesus healed, uh, simply by being touched in a crowd and then power went out from him. Very weird phrasing there in the gospel. But Mina in the quote we actually read in episode 39 is made unclean. Uh, and it becomes uh, allergic uh, to some kind of a uh, spiritual symbolism. And yet the heroes around her still have hope that they'll be able to defeat the evil that might, in their view, interfere with her resurrection. Uh, so much stuff uh, we could get really sidetracked talking about uh, the biblical imagery just completely at the foundation of uh, of the original Dracula book. It's interesting, though, because this I, I can think of some other Dracula adaptations, I guess, that are they kind of go a lot harder on the evil, but also probably a lot lighter on the hope. I would say one story that just came to mind is the TV series, the strain. This came out about eight years ago, ran for a few seasons. And this is sort of about a vampiric virus. And the hero is, uh, uh basically Dr. Fauci, <laughs> like a CDC guy. I don't know if, how well that would play today, but, uh, back then it was amazing. I mean, it was very terrifying when I watched this and I, I couldn't, I had to stop watching at some point cause it got very grotesque, gory, bloody. I don't, I don't like a lot of blood, uh, in movies and the vampires were kind of more like zombies in some ways. And also there was like different classes of vampires, but it was about like vampires basically taking over society. It was thrilling, but it was, uh, depressing at times. Cause it's like, it looks like everyone's just going to die and be turned into vampires. And so it sounds like Bram Stoker's Dracula has more hope in it than the modern ones do too. Absolutely. I mean, it's definitely dark. Uh, I've built in some disclaimers for folks about this story, uh, but I don't like stories that revel in the darkness. I don't get anything out of that. Even if I'm feeling very dark, I want there to be hope. I mean, that's how scripture does it. Uh, that's why we had to uh, do the concession stand in our last episode about when we call uh, the Bible a horror story. It is not. It includes horror elements. And only yeah. if you're a non-Christian does it become a horror story because at right. the end, you know, you're doomed. But uh, horror is uh, in reality and in scripture, which defines the reality. I mean, it is a subset of reality for those who are in Christ. So, I mean, Dracula has plenty of horror, plenty of darkness, plenty of suspense and creepy creatures and terrible things and victimizations and assaults and PTSD and everything. But there's so much hope as well. Uh, if for no other reason than the people who are in there are just absolute 
heroes, even while they're suffering. Uh, I feel drawn alongside them, and so do a lot of readers who are discovering this book. Speaking of old books that have helped revolutionize English literature, we're going to step back a few centuries for a better adaptation of an older book. Uh, Zach mentioned that some of the Dracula vampire fictions haven't done very well in respecting Stoker. David Umstad has done better respecting The Pilgrim's Progress in his new podcast, The Pilgrim's Progress Reloaded. Pilgrim's Progress is a classic story of redemption, allegory, and theological poignance that has profoundly impacted millions of readers over three centuries and changed the landscape of English literature forever. It's also a story with a total lack of robots, space marines, or talking platypuses. So we fixed that. You're welcome. Pilgrim's Progress Reloaded is a narrative podcast you can listen to on the podcast app you're using right now. Just search for Pilgrim's Progress Reloaded to start listening for free. Get the link for that in our show notes for episode 133 or atop our lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors page. So Zach, whether you're a pilgrim or a vampire hunter, you need to fight evil. And that's the theme of Dracula, which brings us to chapter three to wrap this discussion. Can this new fandom for Dracula help us recover fictional evil? So far, they seem to be doing a good job. And I expressed that hope back in our October 2020 episode with Jeffrey Ryder about Dracula. I was saying, I hope that more people can discover this story because it's presenting us with a portrayal of evil that we need in this age. Uh, I think it may help people give a language or an image to something that they're feeling but can't really articulate, especially because there are so many people trying to excuse the evil as people's authentic identity and all that sort of thing. Uh, In this case, the evil is exposed. Uh, You see it for what it is by seeing it described as something that doesn't exist, does it? A vampire. But the vampire's symbolism is just so powerful. Uh, It's certainly given me a language to see these things. And I think a lot of fans are seeing the same thing. And they are, by the way, not just seeing evil, but they're seeing the good. Uh, So many of the comments I've seen from the Dracula Daily community by way of Lacey uh, are loving the heroes. I've mentioned some of this already, but they're not uh, recoiling from these. A lot of people were a little flippant earlier about, oh, like Jonathan in the castle, like, oh, creepy castle. He's going to go there anyway. Uh, What's all these warnings from the uh, good Transylvanian simple folk? That's so funny. They're so superstitious uh, about the count. I should ask the count about this. And then he shows up there and slight spoiler here, Dracula is doing all of his own servant work. And at least at one point is pulling off a pretense of being his own coachman. It's kind of funny, and people started to make fun of it a little bit uh, in a more gentle way, I think, because it is kind of funny. But then once it started getting serious, folks adjusted very quickly, uh, and they realized, oh, this is going to be a serious book, even with some arguable melodrama. Uh, Folks want Jonathan and Mina to build their marriage. They want them to resist evil. They love the wholesomeness. They love the way. Uh, that frankly, this is a complementarian marriage, uh, but they are still equal partners in the marriage. Like she's helping him, he's helping her. Uh, when we discover what he's been through, like her response is just what you would hope from a good woman or a good girlfriend, a good sister, a good friend who discovers that you've been through some terrible instance of assault and abuse. Like Jonathan is legit traumatized and she does what you should do, uh, which a lot of people really appreciated and I thought they might. Uh, They want uh, the the three men who are introduced, uh, Dr. Seward and Quincy Morris and Arthur Holmwood. They want them to be strong, faithful men. They're different. At least one of them gets a bit jilted and you see him kind of struggling with that. But the others are there to help him through this. They're all good chums there in this uh, wholesome, upstanding male trio, uh, but also very different. You know, Dr. Seward is going off with his madmen and Dr. Van Helsing roasts him a little bit. And he seems to be in good humor about it. It's just good stuff. And as I mentioned, they, they, the readers don't think that Dracula and his predatory ways are sexy at all. Uh, what I've noticed too, Zach, and I, I wondered if people would catch up to this. One thing that they are noticing is that oddly enough, uh, 120 years after the book, after several famous film adaptations like the Bela Lugosi one and all of that, the Universal Monsters and stuff, uh, all of that included, we have not yet had a book faithful adaptation of Dracula to film or miniseries. And fans have been wondering why. And some of the changes made to make Dracula more sympathetic or Mina actually allured by him, which is just absolutely loathsome to readers of the book or anybody who's been through a situation like that with a predatory abuser. 
uh, it's just disgusting uh, that you'd want to put that in there or change the story. It just ruins the whole thing from the get go. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not to get, not just getting the events out of order or making a composite character out of two or three. A lot of these movies have just ruined it and fans don't like that. So there's now like a major push among these fans for a better, more faithful mini series or film adaptation. And that's what I would love to see. Although if we never see it, that's fine. The book by itself is perfectly fine. You know, Stephen, this has been coming up in so many pop culture adaptations nowadays that fans want a faithful adaptation and then they're called horrible names for wanting that. And we don't have time to get into all those examples. Patently evil. I saw some people call fans patently evil for not liking what they did. And that itself seemed to be to be a patently evil false accusation. There's two common themes I noticed with fans that want faithful adaptations. Number one, we're typically nerds that just want to see a, We know all the details by heart and we just want to see those on screen because it's fun to see it on screen what you've always just pictured in your head. But number two, I think what a faithful adaptation really is, it's time travel. The thing I keep hearing from all these crazy, weird adaptations nowadays is, well, we have to show it in the context of modern society and adapt it to all. No, we we don't have to adapt anything. I want the story as it appeared 20, 50, 100 years ago, because I want to travel back in time to that era, whether I agree with you know, that period of time or not, whether I fully embrace all the social mores back then, I still want to at least go back and explore it. I mean, I've always loved actual time travel movies. A a faithful adaptation is just another form of that. Yeah. If you go into an adaptation and you get this, uh, this modern flair in the dialogue of somebody in a certain TV show is saying, okay, or if in another fantasy series, you see a Starbucks cup left on the table in the background, <laughs> uh, it takes you completely out of the story. Or it's like seeing an unfinished green screen or a boom mic dropping from the top. But even worse, it's just a complete violation of the authors or the story world's moral worldview. And it shows that the adaptation people want to make the story fit their views. Like they are not in service to the story Uh, They're using it as a tool for their own purposes. And that's what so many of these fans don't like, especially because they're learning to love these characters in their original versions. And maybe they haven't seen a lot of Dracula movies. Maybe they have, and they just immediately see the difference. And they want this Victorian world, uh, which is kind of funny because you mentioned, like, we're supposed to laugh at, oh, this Victorian morality. You know, everybody keeps their emotions shut up. Well, this may be an idealized or exaggerated version of that, but not Stoker's version of this world uh, Mm -hmm. where the men are men and the women are women and they are flawed, but they are pursuing virtue and folks are really resonating with that. And I just think that is probably, I think, going to help prepare the soil, as it were, using the biblical metaphor of the seed. But but let's switch the metaphor, actually. Uh, Let me back up here. Uh, lots of Christians, uh, lots of Christian fantasy fans, folks we have on the podcast, uh, we make a joke out of it. You know, they'll say that they discovered faith and fantasy because of Narnia. And we use that as an example of the Holy Spirit preparing someone for the gospel. Like, yes, you know about Jesus in Sunday school, uh, and you may even love him already as your Lord and Savior, but it helps to have backup, a picture like uh, Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia. And when the real Jesus Christ himself uses types and shadows in the bible like oh jesus is the son of david so he's a little like david lion of judah yeah Yeah. exactly he's the second adam or the last adam so he's kind of like adam and then he has mastery over creation and rightful stewardship of the world but better Uh, he's kind of like elijah but better all these things that jesus uses uh i think the holy spirit also uses in man-made stories now of course it's different the comparisons break down but God will use things to prepare you for Jesus. That's just a habit in the Bible. I think it's a habit in the world too. And then I think, was it Lewis or commentators on Lewis who will talk about pre-baptism? Uh, it's like getting you ready, you know, almost well, like baptize a my imagination. Yeah, exactly. Baptize the imagination. I think that in retrospect, we're, we're going to find out in the future, uh, just as it's already done, but maybe we just don't hear that story as much. I'll wager that many future Christians who have gotten saved in this age may cite Dracula as an example of having their imaginations baptized because, you know, you may not be getting an altar call in the story, but you're going to get allusions to the power of Christ compels you. Not just people are wielding these spiritual weapons or these languages. Like uh, we mentioned in our last episode, the seven sons of Sceva, you know, running around uh, throwing words and stuff at people to see if they can get the demons to come out. 
just as a, as a mechanism. Like, no, the heroes of Dracula understand and know the spiritual symbols, just like they understand and know, you know, how to use a Winchester rifle uh, or a knife or memorize the, the train schedules. Yeah. All very important to take down a, a a vampire who's uh, running around London. All that stuff matters. You have to know what it means and you have to be willing to use that stuff. And I think that new readers are going to see that. They're going to feel that. I mean, I would just pray uh, that readers would see that and know that. I want God to use this story, which obviously is very different from Narnia, very darker. Therefore, it probably reflects a lot of the dark realities that people have been through. Uh, I hope that God will use this story as a, a baptism of imagination for more people. But if nothing else, I think that maybe this fandom and like if it keeps going, uh, then I'd like to see more of the damage from the sexy vampire trope uh, being repaired. I'm sure there's some twihards still around us and we're not going to make fun of people or any of that. Like I, I know there's a thriving community of who still loves those books and the films, including a lot of Christians. We haven't talked about it much, but the fact is that whether it's those books, those books or the hangers on, you know, the TV shows, CW vampires and all that. Like we've had this sexy vampire trope. Evil has been made to look appealing, which is terrible. I don't mean you're going to hell or bad Christian. If you watch it, I just mean that culturally, if you make evil that appealing, that's bad. Uh, you're being driven further into the horror, the darkness, but you don't even know that you are. If you're not aware that you're being chased by monsters, you probably are a monster. Real horror ought to compel you back to the power of Christ. And I want to see that damage repaired. And I want to see these fans and not just stop with Dracula or read it again or look for similar stories. Trace the light that is shining through Dracula, the hope that's there. Trace it back, not to Stoker, not to Victorian morals, uh, not even to uh, the virtuous heroes who I'm sure have a lot of idealism packed into them. Trace it back to the ultimate source, which is, of course, the power of Christ that ought to compel you toward the gospel. Well, over at the comm station, we got a really nice uh, note from Mike Duran. He posted on Facebook about our previous episode, 132, Do Christians Really Need Horror? And Mike says, quote, great podcast from the guys at Lorehaven on the perennially miry subject of the horror genre and how Christians should approach it, in quotes. So a little tongue twister there. Perennially miry, perennially miry, perennially right, miry. Say it three yeah. times. <laughs> Oh, and then he might appear. Oh, no. Appreciate that, Mike. Mike has been a guest on the podcast before. Uh, episode 36, How Do Paranormal Tales Edify the Christian Reader? And we interviewed him about uh, that topic and horror and paranormal. And, you know, are these books good for the Christian? Can they edify us? And are they good for our imagination? So definitely go check out that interview with Mike. Uh, very related to our previous episode about horror. And then also we got a note in the Lorehaven Guild from Count Thomas the Alchemist, who said, quote, thoroughly enjoyed this week's Fantastical Truth episode. The fear of God is nothing to trifle with. Sometimes we forget how holy our God truly is. This episode exposed that to me in a new light, end quote. Well, thanks, Thomas. I'm glad you enjoyed that. And to you, our listener, what notes do you have for us about Dracula, horror, paranormal, any of these topics, uh, send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com or tag us on social media. Just look for Lorehaven. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And of course, if you are one of the heroes of the Lorehaven Guild, we would love to get your feedback there. Meanwhile at Lorehaven, uh, Zach and faithful listener, by the end of this month, I may be all dracula out. It seems that he's been uh, spooking the place up uh, all over the place, lurking in every shadow. I posted an article, a remix from an older article at Lorehaven linked in the show notes called I'm No Horror Fan, but I've grown to love Bram Stoker's novel Dracula. It's kind of my origin story, how I decided to read the book, what I thought of it, some of what I think about the uh, book quest, uh, which of course is going on in the Lorehaven Guild, as Zach mentioned. Just subscribe free lorehaven.com, enter the castle, enter freely, and join us for daily now not dracula daily but daily questions one for each chapter going forward through the end of october this year hey we've also shared our new review of sharon hink's novel dream of kings i quoted from that during the sponsorship earlier you can get that link in the show notes too uh, it's not uh, creepy for october but there is a castle in the front and there's some dreams and stuff going on there so i think it still fits the theme next on fantastical truth well if it's not one creepy critter it's another here in monster month Next to rise up moaning, not from the crypt, but from the secret lab, it's mad scientists. 
mad dun, scientists dun, everywhere. Dun. Whether it's Victor Frankenstein, not a doctor, from Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein, or all those Marvel villains or the folks who keep letting the dinosaurs loose at Jurassic Park, or in the real world, the scientists who are actively trying to experiment on human beings, not a great plan, mad science just won't stop. What is unique about these monsters, the mad scientists, and the monsters they make? How can stories like Frankenstein warn us against humming along with what Tony Stark once called the man was not meant to meddle medley? That's our next episode on Fantastical Truth. Meanwhile, watch out for vampires. They are not sexy. They're not suave. It's all an act. The vampire, whether in fiction or in real life, will gaslight you. He may appear like Satan himself as an angel of light, but his goal is destruction. His home is the grave. Quite literally, all the biblical imagery is there and it's all amazing, but don't get stuck there. Run to Christ. His power compels you and it ought to compel you to seek even better stories that show the darkness for what it truly is as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. <laughs>